FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us uh, for today's show. Boy, a lot of news has been breaking uh, as we get set to go on the air, and we'll get to that in just a minute after I introduce the panel to you. Remember, of course, if you want to watch this show, just go to Facebook and go to the GPB news page. We're there, and you can see us as we go through our next uh, 58-plus minutes of the show. And, of course, you can also tweet us with your comments and observations at Politics GPB. Greg Bluestein, uh, who I always think of as the lead political reporter for the AJC. I know that gets you in trouble with some people at the paper, but nobody is filing more stories about politics in Georgia than you are. How are you? Job security right now with, with such an interesting 2020 coming up. Boy, that is absolutely for sure. Uh, next to you, Eric Tannenblatt, one of the most respected Republican insiders in the state of Georgia. Longtime ties to uh, um, presidential candidates and presidents of the United States on the Republican side. George H.W., George W., uh, Bush, among others, Mitt Romney, you're still uh, closely affiliated with. Uh, and, and you have, over the years, uh, been a counselor to many Republicans right here in Georgia. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Glad to be here. In a little while, we're going to get to talk about your field trip to New York City. Very exciting. To ring the opening bell. It's exciting to be in Georgia these days, getting ready for the Super Bowl. (laughs) And we will talk about that in just a little while. Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University. Hi, Amy. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm really, you know, it's interesting. Our listeners are getting to know you better. You, It's been great to have you uh, uh, coming on the show with some regularity. Thanks for doing that. Thank you so much. I really enjoy it. And State Representative Scott Holcomb, Democrat from, uh, do we say Brookhaven? Is that the center of the district, essentially? Brookhaven, Shambly, Dorval, Unincorporated Atlanta, a little bit of Gwinnett. Okay. They're all in the studio. Meanwhile, Tamar Hallerman, who has nothing but time on her hands up there because there's no news breaking up there, joins us from uh, D.C. She's the AJC Washington correspondent. Hi, Tamar. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We're going to get to you very quickly because there's some big news out of Washington. Before we do that, let's just do one quick breaking story right here in Georgia. Greg, you filed a piece for political blog, which I guess is still called the Political Insider. As far as we know. <laughs> okay, at AJC. Uh, breaking news about Brian Kemp and uh, a loan that got him uh, attacked over and over again by Democrats during the campaign. Yeah, um, a guy named Rick Phillips was a financier up in Tacoa, Georgia, and he loaned Brian Kemp $500,000 and went very public with it after uh, Brian Kemp um, apparently didn't pay back the loan and filed a lawsuit. Not only that, but also became a surrogate for Casey Cagle on the campaign trail and attacked Kemp relentlessly. Um, Well, that lawsuit, which also came into factor during the general election, Stacey Abrams used it to to question his financial viability and his and his uh, his business chops, um, that lawsuit was settled. We only found it was only put on the docket um, this week, but it was settled days before Kemp was sworn into office. So he got he got kind of got that out of the way quietly. You know, Scott, what's interesting to me about that is uh, obviously he won the race, so there are many of these things that are put behind him in any case. But your friends in the Democratic Party of Georgia have made it clear you're going to keep. Uh, Kemp on the hot seat as much as you can, uh, certainly as he starts his tenure as governor, and to the extent that this may have been something that could have continued to play out to some extent, it's now off the table. I I think it's a smart move, and besides just the economic liability of it and his deposition from what was announced is he had trouble remembering just about everything to include his name. I mean, it it was just absurd, uh, his memory loss within uh, that case. And so he does put this behind him, but it doesn't mean that we can't remind people from time to time when it seems appropriate to do so. Okay. Uh, By the way, Eric Tannenblatt, Cindy Simpson, who watches us on Facebook all the time, says, you mean Eric Tannenblatt's a new guest because I mentioned Amy. I didn't say that about you because you've been doing the show for since we went on almost five years ago. Well, 
Glad to be here. <laughs> Just want to make sure Cindy understands uh, what that was about. And Scott Hokum, you've been coming on. We're glad to have you around here as well. All right. Let's talk Washington and the shutdown and the uh, developments that we think might be going on over the next couple of days in the United States Senate. First of all, though, tomorrow, uh, we now have learned, of course, that President Trump has every intention of going to the U.S. House next Tuesday night to deliver his State of the Union address, despite Nancy Pelosi essentially suggesting that uh, he ought to uh, forego that speech until the shutdown is over with. I figure this means what? David Perdue will be the lead blocker to get him past the House <laughs> uh, doorkeeper or sergeant at arms? Well, a, a little bit of geeky kind of congressional procedure here, but, but the president, in order to give a State of the Union address, the House and the Senate need to pass resolutions okaying that. So Trump still needs Pelosi to okay this, but by sending this letter today, he's essentially daring her to tell him no. Yes, of course. Yes. Thank you for that. I really didn't think he was going to storm the door. But, 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 Tamar, you just said an important thing. The president is saying to Pelosi, essentially, I, I'm calling your bluff. And uh, it may be a very clever political move, Tamar. Totally. And I mean, there, there are other places where he could give the speech on Capitol Hill. He could give it in the Senate chamber. You know, Mitch McConnell could agree to do that. But, um, you know, that would not be the traditional kind of ceremonial place. It, it would look kind of like a rookie thing. So he is essentially daring the uh, Pelosi to say, yeah, turn me down, see what happens. Well, she raised the issue of security. And, you know, he now has, you know, confirmation from the Secret Service that that's not going to be an issue. So she, he is calling her bluff. Yeah, I mean, Scott, you're an attorney. What's interesting about this is Pelosi may have made a mistake that if she had been counseled by an attorney, she would not have made, which is she did, in fact, put a very specific reason why she wanted the State of the Union delayed during the shutout. She called it uh, because of security. It's very easy for the White House to come back and say the Secret Service says it's fine. Capitol Police say it's fine. So in a way, that may have been kind of a small mistake that gives the president an opening here. I agree with that, and I think that um, the executive agencies, to include Homeland Security, are also weighing in and saying that they can provide um, the security. And the way that I really try to look at these issues is, is what is the principled way that these should be resolved? And all too often, we're not seeing principle dominate in our political conversation, particularly in Washington. And um, I don't know how it's going to play out, but it's, it's not very encouraging. Amy? Well, I think part of what's interesting about it is that this is a real inner branch dispute, right? The State of the Union is not a mandated speech per year, right? The Constitution simply says from time to time, the president should tell Congress what's going on in the executive branch. And it's morphed into, it started with Woodrow Wilson that they gave a speech. And so now they come to the Capitol. And again, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that the president has to be invited in. He's yeah. not allowed to just come to yeah, the Capitol. As, as Tamar points in, out, well, yeah. and in the same way that members of Congress can't just go to the White House. They also have to be invited in there. And so it really is sort of showing, I think, this pull, push and pull. And I think that there's an interesting part of it of also that it is somewhat of an issue that is the Secret Service, given that their head is the president, really able to say, no, we can't ensure your safety? even if you're not paying us and even if there's not a budget for it, right, that's sort of putting into t tension these sorts of things where, again, lots of people are being called back who, again, aren't being paid at this time and they aren't in a position to be able to say no. Yeah. And yet another dividing line for, for, for politicians from both parties to take a stance on. Tamara, have we heard from, from any of the Georgia delegation on, on whether or not they, they support this move? I mean, I, I haven't heard ever since the president sent this letter about an hour ago to Pelosi, but in general, you've heard a lot of outrage from Republicans like Doug Collins about uh, Pelosi even requesting that the president put this off. So this falls along kind of very predictable partisan lines, as so many of the, these issues of the day have among our delegation. It does seem, Tamar, uh, on both sides at this point, I mean, there, Pelosi, got, Pelosi got credit clearly from her side, from Democrats, for making this bold uh, move to say to the president, ah, you really ought not come here while the shutdown is underway. 
Uh, but it, it was a little bit flawed in the way it was executed. And now it just strikes me that people are going to view this as just pettiness on both sides and certainly not going to do anything to get the two sides closer to a resolution on the shutdown. Exactly. And, and you know, this is such kind of a surfacey kind of proxy fight over something that, you know, at the end of the day, he can give a speech whenever you, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a silly fight. So when it, when it comes to winning over the public over a real issue like border security, like a wall, like uh, reopening the government, this doesn't really do anyone any favors, does it? I, I think on this one, though, the president actually in the end will come out ahead because it just plays right into the mess in Washington, and he still is the guy that's fighting Washington. Yeah, but Scott, he's got a long way to go. Eric may be right in this small fight. He's got a long way to go to make up the ground he's lost. Every poll suggests that the American people blame him uh, by a fairly wide margin for this shutdown. That's right, to include his base. And and I think I'll add, in, in defense of the position of not letting the State of the Union go forward is is that would suggest that things are in a normal state. We're not in a normal state. So I think that an argument can be made that, look, you have 800,000 workers that can't go to work can't or are working and aren't getting paid or can't go to work and want to. So we shouldn't just continue and act as if everything is right in the world. It's not. And so uh, I think a case can definitely be made um, to support the position that the speaker has taken. And, and I really do hope that we can, as all Americans do, that we can move past this in some way. Well, the other thing that's interesting about it is the timing. Uh, in approximately 15 minutes, the Senate is supposed to start a round of voting on two different variants of actually opening the government. And so there's also the fact of now this has put another sort of divisive issue right. on top of it exactly. that makes it harder to get that bipartisan and, compromise. And I'm glad you brought that up. So tomorrow, as, as Amy has pointed out, the the Senate is poised to vote on two separate measures the Republican measure that essentially adopts President Trump's proposal, which is $5.7 billion, which he's demanded all along for the wall. Uh, it also, depending on what side you're on, uh, is a good proposal in terms of protecting some 700,000 DACA uh, recipients or uh, DACA people here in the United States. There are a few other provisions. Democrats would say that there are poison pills all over this measure. But this, but Mitch McConnell is definitely going to bring that bill to the floor, right? Yeah, that that, that will happen tomorrow, as well as an, a Democratic measure, yes. which would just reopen the government until February 8th. So a three-week stopgap with no funding for oh, the wall. Okay, so starting with you tomorrow, then let's get, get everybody in the mix here. Nobody expects either of these bills are going to be able to attract 60 votes. So what's the point of all this? Um, I, I was reading somewhere, and somebody described it really well. It's kind of like a, a release valve a little bit. There's been a ton of pressure politically on senators over the last few weeks. Remember, they have not taken a vote on the border wall, on the shutdown, on reopening government since before the Christmas holiday. Um, you know, that's when they unanimously passed a, a, a stopgap spending bill. And kind of since then, they've been kind of sitting on their hands waiting for um, waiting for Trump and Speaker Pelosi to cut a deal on, on this border wall. In the meantime, they're under a huge amount of pressure from their bases to act, either to, to vote to reopen government with no border wall uh, money attached or to, to vote to uh, in favor of that border money. Um, so this will at least get folks on the record so they can go home to their bases and say, look, I've been voting, you know, I voted X number of times in favor of the border wall. Um, and the hope is maybe once we get past this, that'll get, you know, kind of grease the, the skids a little bit and, and get people talking again, because there really hasn't been much discussion in, in a week or two. I agree completely. I mean, it's, it's the, the word is, is posturing. It's just like in Georgia, where the Georgia Senate votes on something they know very well the Georgia House won't vote on, but they can still go back to the constituents and say, well, I voted for this. Because it's true. They, they will have voted for these bills, even if they have no chance of getting, getting to President Trump's desk. It's what I like to call a press release vote. Um, you know, everybody, everybody knows from the beginning these are, are show votes that aren't going to end up in the final compromise. But you can go back and see, say, look what I did for you, constituents. All right. Let, let's, so we're going to watch how those, those votes unfold and anticipate they will fail. Uh, there are those who, who have suggested that one of the reasons for this uh, vote, the McConnell vote, Eric, the Republican vote, 
may be to demonstrate to President Trump how difficult it really will be in the long run for him to get what he wants in terms of his $5.7 billion for the wall, and that maybe this is a little dose of reality for the president. That's been another take on why they're moving ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's more what was said earlier. I think that there are a number of members in the Senate that have to go on record as you know okay. demonstrating that they're voting for it. One last comment, though, about the State of the Union. You know, a lot of this is inside baseball, but if you really think about it, uh, President Trump is very good at commanding attention. And so now we're going to debate what's going to happen. And there's going to be all this drama leading up till Tuesday and whether the speech takes place in the House chambers or somewhere outside Washington, D.C., People are going to be watching. Yeah, they're but, going to be watching what he has to say. Right. But, Amy, if, if the speech is what it's been traditionally, a really a real written speech, he's going to be on teleprompter. Not what President Trump tends to do best. <laughs> I, and that's very true. I mean, he is best when he's allowed to be sort of freer and unscripted and in an environment where people are also a bit freer to respond to it. I mean, the State of the Union is a very um, stayed. Let's, stayed and kind of tightly reined in association. There's not really mm. supposed to be cheering. There's clapping at certain points, um, outbursts. There certainly are not chants and things like that going on. And so there is sort of that difference on it and what that's going to look like. And the last time, it was not a great speech um, because that's not where he's as comfortable in doing it and sort of not allowed to go off into the types of things that he usually likes and it feeds I, off on. I get all that. I have to tell you, as a reporter, and, and Tamara, you certainly understand this, who used to travel to Washington for every State of the Union address, it is still, whether he's your party's president or not, an incredibly exciting night because there's so much uh, tradition and history now behind it. And when the president of the United States comes to the Hill, if you're in the rotunda where you can wait for people to arrive and see the nine justices of the, of the Supreme Court come through, the members of the cabinet, all of the members of the House and the Senate, oh, it, it doesn't matter which, which party you're a part of. It's a very momentous evening for all who observe it, right? Exactly. And the president knows that, too. I think a lot of this, you know, there, there's a fight. He, he wants to be taken seriously. He wants to be treated, uh, you know, very in a very presidential manner. And so while I think he does like to, you know, these kind of fights to the death, um, you know, I think he also is very sensitive to slights like this, to things that a normal president, there'd be a lot of deference uh, to. So um, I think this is important to him to show that he is the president and he'll, you know, they'll let him do this tradition that they've been doing for hundreds of years. OK, so this is the uh, uh, the um, political side of all this. Will he or won't he be in the House of Representatives? What's going to happen in the vote tomorrow? In the meantime, Scott Holcomb, uh, tomorrow and a couple Tamar and two of her colleagues filed a piece for the AJC over the weekend that really is what matters. The politics are some people would find entertaining, frustrating, whatever. This is having a significant impact on Georgia. And, and I'll start with you on this. Uh, Tamar's article points out Georgia stands to lose $489 million for every month. The government is partially shut down. It's the eighth hardest hit state. And uh, because partly federal workers represent about 3% of the state's workforce. This, and we'll go into this a little bit more, but let's start from this point of view. This is, this is really hurting Georgia. It is. It's a disaster across the board. We have 16,000 federal workers. Uh, we have the airport, which is going to be impacted by the Super Bowl if this isn't resolved anytime soon. We have farmers who need to have access to credit. We have um, food that needs to be inspected for the safety of our families. Um, there's just issue after issue after issue that's being impacted by this. We have FBI um, agents who are limited in what they can do in terms of investigation. Some of them are getting food from food banks now. Uh, it, it's really outrageous where things are right now. And, and again, as, as I've said before, I really hope that we can find a path forward. Tomorrow, we're going to post, uh, Robert, if you uh, listen, we ought to post a link to this story on our uh, Twitter feed, on our Facebook page, however we want to do it. 
But Tamara, there were some very compelling stories that you and your colleagues uh, gathered for this piece. Farmers, uh, people looking for small business loans. Can, can you give, just give us a couple of quick hits on what some of those individual uh, concerns have been, what they're losing? Yeah, we, we interviewed a, a farmer from Cuthbert whose farm was hit particularly hard by Hurricane Michael. And she was mentioning that she needs to go to the, the Farm Service Agency, which is a, a part of USDA, the, the Agriculture Department, um, to get loans to help her kind of get her finances straight from the last year, the 2018 crop year, and then also get ready for planting in 2019. Uh, she hasn't been able to do that. We interviewed several small business owners who rely on loans from the Small Business Administration to, um, you know, hire employees to invest in equipment, and they haven't been able to do that. We interviewed a, a woman who's a uh, rocket scientist who, who works with NASA on different projects. She had one in the pipeline ready to go, but because of the shutdown, she hasn't been able to um, move ahead w- with that stuff. So kind of up and down the board looking at, at what this has meant for Georgia's economy. Real stories about real people. You know, Eric, when, when uh, Tamar mentioned the, the farmers who are hurt by this, I suddenly realized Sonny Perdue, who has been one of the more outspoken uh, supporters of President Trump in the cabinet, he's sure been low profile through all of this. I, he, I'm not sure what he could say or would say, but it is interesting that he has virtually disappeared from the public dialogue. Well, that's because his uh, department is shut down. I mean, okay. yeah, it's one of those departments. And so he's sort of limited into how visible uh, he can be. But clearly he's, you know, concerned for the end users of the ag programs and has a uh, clearly has a knowledge of, you know, what the impact would be in a state state like Georgia. So, so but he's part of the administration. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can't imagine anyone in the administration uh, is not going to be uh, supportive of of the president. Well, no, I he's going to be, of course, but Scott, of course, Tannenblatt was his first chief of staff when Purdue was governor of Georgia. So he, Scott, you're going to, you're, you know, I, I don't mean to suggest you're biased by that. I'm really, that's my way of telling people who are listening that you did work for him at one point when he was governor. Yeah, but I, I mean, I don't think any any elected official or appointed official in Washington, whether it's a member of Congress or even the president of the United States, does not wish the government was open right now. It's just they're at an impasse. I, I was okay. Granted, I was thinking, Scott, in that position, I might want to offer. Of course, he supports the president. I might want to offer some words of encouragement to farmers that their needs have not been forgotten. By the way, Bluestein just pointed out to me that yesterday, Purdue did in fact announce all farm service agencies, uh, off, all farm service agency offices are going to reopen to provide additional administrative services to farmers and ranchers. So they're doing their best. I'm just talking about being, if nothing else, an advocate saying, I'm thinking about you. There is that, but a lot of the issues that uh, the farmers are dealing with across the country and certainly here in Georgia have been a result of the federal government. Tariffs have had a very negative overall impact on them. The shutdown right now, um, it, it's it's we are not being a friend to our farmers in terms of government policy right now. All right. I am getting. Go ahead. You want to say, say something, Greg? Quick, it's a triple whammy to some of these farmers. There's the tariffs. There's the shutdown, and then there's Hurricane Michael, which was generational right. damage, right. especially to the pecan industry and some of those industries down there. Um, that that is going to take decades to recover from. It's pecan, Greg. Pecan. <laughs> Sandy Springs, we say pecan. Wow. Wow, I'm usually the one who gets corrected on this show, not not my uh, panelists. All right, let's do this. Uh, Robert Jimison is giving me a heavy sign that it is time to take a break. I'll do that. And as we do tomorrow, I know you've got a lot to do up there. We're going to be talking about the legislative uh, issues that are facing uh, our legislators here in Georgia. So uh, we'll let you get back to your work. But I hope you'll come back on soon. We really want to stay in touch with you as things develop in Washington. Anytime. Thanks a lot, Tamar. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
Financial contributions Everybody from else. listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. In Texas's biggest county, a record 19 elected judges are bringing black girl magic to the bench. Just the idea of black girl magic in and of itself is just a celebration of the accomplishments of African-American women in various sectors within society and typically those where we're underrepresented. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, Harris County's big step towards representation. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, you know what? Let's Before we turn to the state legislature, let's talk a little bit more about the impact the shutdown could have on the biggest event coming up in Atlanta. And that, of course, is the Super Bowl on February 3rd. Mm-hmm. I have that date. Everybody's saying good. OK, thank you. Uh, Eric, you were in New York, and I want to talk about that in a second. But before we do, uh, I I want you to hear Keisha Lance Bottoms was on an NPR show just before us uh, here and now. She was asked about all of this and she made a little news in terms of the big concern about given the rush of people who will particularly all be leaving most likely on Monday morning. How with a shutdown in effect is TSA going to handle this if they have workers calling in sick? She said something very interesting. Let's listen. Well, actually, we are very close to finalizing a plan to provide some financial support for our TSA workers. We're working along with our credit union um, who supports the city of Atlanta for our city of Atlanta employees and also many of our corporate partners to create some type of fund that will allow us to extend the opportunity for loans to our TSA workers. You know, we're in uncharted territory, as I've said before, so we're having to come up with a plan in real time as people are experiencing the shutdown. So, Scott Hokum, the uh, city has worked as hard as it possibly can to anticipate lots of different kinds of problems. The last thing they want is a repeat of the Super Bowl, the Ice Bowl in 2000, when the city was uh, iced in and people couldn't get around. Now, Keisha, but this is a, a circumstance that there's nobody, nobody can prepare for. It'd be interesting to think about the possibility of businesses stepping up, getting involved in making sure that things go smoothly, at least at the airport. Yeah, we need to. And some legislators and I are talking about things that might happen at the state level, too. So I think that there's a lot of attention that's being focused on this right now because it's very important that Atlanta show well during the Super Bowl. Here to elaborate? What, what, yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, we're exploring legislation for interest-free loans uh, to see if there's a way to set that up from the state. Connecticut's already done it, and um, so we are looking at that right now, myself and some other legislators and um, and any other ideas that we can push forward to, to help these workers. I, I was traveling yesterday uh, when I'm not a legislator, I'm a lawyer, and I felt really bad going through the airport. And I think that that's now a common sentiment is that these folks have been working a very long time without getting you, paid. Well, and don't forget the FAA, right? So all of the people that make sure the planes don't crash into each other are also working an incredibly high stress job without pay. Yeah, to put this into context, TSA officers, air traffic controllers, customs officers have all been working without pay since the federal shutdown began on December 22nd. And TSA officers have been calling out at sick rates as high as 10% over the, over yeah, the weekend yeah. because of the fact that they're not work, they're working without pay. It was down to 7%, I think, yesterday. Yeah. But yes, there have been some high sick rates. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm certainly far from unique, but I traveled this weekend. And I, I have to say, every TSA agent that I, I had contact with, I thanked them for being willing to keep working and uh, keep us safe. And I'm sure many people are uh, uh, looking at them and thanking them for their service. Eric, you were in New York in very prestigious company yesterday. Yes, yes. And I did pass through the airport and I did thank the TSA uh, <laughs> workers who were actually in good spirits. Yeah, I was surprised at that too. But, but, uh, 
But I was in New York with um, with a number of business and political leaders from Georgia that went up to uh, join Arthur Blank in ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, which was arranged by Jeff Sprecher, who is the CEO of ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New he York Stock Exchange. He owns the New York, he, and he's an Atlanta-based guy. Right. He and his wife together are based here. And there was a lot of excitement. The fact that 150 people went up from Atlanta to New York uh, on the floor of the Stock Exchange, and we were cheering and hooting and hollering <laughs> and as uh, Arthur Blank rang the bell. There was a lot of excitement around the Super Bowl. So was the governor? It was the, the governor, mayor, the governor, the mayor, the speaker of the house, the lieutenant governor, Rob Pitts, the chairman of the Fulton County Commission. Uh, again, a lot, lot of, lot of excitement. And that's why everyone wants to make sure things go smoothly. There's been a lot of preparation. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Was that question raised at, with any of the people that your group came into contact with about whether Atlanta was going to be able to handle all this? Well, I think people feel like Atlanta is prepared for this. Now, this was something that was unexpected, but I think as the the mayor doesn't make an announcement like that without there having been some discussions, and those sure. discussions just didn't start, you know, 24 hours ago. And so I'm sure that that's a concern that the host committee has been, you know, trying to, you know, think through, you know, what are we going to do given the current circumstance? Because we are going to have, you know, thousands of people traveling through the airport leading up to the game. And then, of course, on Monday, uh, leave, leaving the city. And we want everyone to have a great experience. We've got a photograph of uh, you and your group uh, that we're going to post. It's already posted, uh, I'm told. Uh, if people want to see the group that went up there. Uh, Greg, there was um, a report the Atlanta Police Department said some time ago, and the chief said they were pretty certain they have all the people they need to be able to handle security and any law enforcement issues that come up. But you can't help but wonder what that means if there are not you know, federal agents supplementing. I'm not quite sure there how are. They, there are. Okay. Because the government shutdown didn't extend to, to, law, to certain law enforcement functions. And, and think about it this way, too. I mean, MARTA has spent $2 million planning for this. Transportation agencies are... So this has been budgeted out for a very long time. So there are extra TSA agents in. There's extra federal agents in. Um, there's a federal law enforcement point man on, on this to make sure, because this is the most, perhaps the most visible event of the year, um, and it's been right here in our backyard. Um, and so all of Atlanta wants to put on a good show and make sure that everything under their control, and even maybe the weather, which isn't under control, is set. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start talking now about some of the things that are happening down at the state capitol. Scott, uh, you're, got your, your, you and your colleagues got an interesting report from the economic forecasters yesterday saying that even though there are concerns that we may be heading toward a recession across the country, uh, that the, the projection is that Georgia's economy is going to continue to chug along for the time being. There will be, they suggest, a slowdown later in the year. But Am I right to suggest the implications of that are that uh, Governor Kemp will have uh, at least some of the money for some of his big programs, like the $3,000 first-year teacher raise, that sort of thing? Is that going to make you all feel better about spending money in this budget? Well, uh, I'm definitely concerned about the economy and where it's going. I think anybody that's paying close attention needs to be. Uh, But the way it works is we have to give deference to the governor's budget estimate in terms of the revenues. And uh, I've read through it, and one of the things that definitely jumped out at me is two of the sectors of our economy, which overall is doing well, and that's our state economy, our construction and leisure and hospitality. If we move into a recession, which that word is being talked about more and more, those are two of the areas that immediately freeze up and dry up. And those are two of our biggest economic generators right now. So we need to be thoughtful and careful about how we go about it. And I think that that we will be. Um, And I think another report that came out this week, which I think is interesting and needs to be part of that conversation, is this idea of Medicaid expansion. Because from the perspective of the Democratic caucus is that we can absolutely afford to do it. Not only that, we can't afford not to do it. Because in terms of the budget, we have currently a tax credit that's $60 million. They want to raise it to $100 million. And we're showing that we could afford expansion for 500,000 Georgians for high ones, low twos. And I, I think that the case is 
made that um, that it's something we should do. I, I want to get into that in a little more detail than Mig, because it's really interesting. Greg, am I, have I missed it? Has the has the governor set a budget, an estimate, a revenue estimate at this point, a percentage, or is that still coming? I think that's still a little bit up in the air, but he did deliver his his budget address sure. just a few hours sure. ago. He did not commit any active news. He didn't say anything new whatsoever, um, but he did lay out the same priorities he laid out in the state of the state address. And you know, as Representative Holcomb said, he is a he is an expensive, ambitious budget for a Republican who ran as a fiscal conservative, um, including this teacher pay raise, including two percent pay raises for all public employees, hundred fifty million dollars for new voting machines. So it will not be easy to get his entire budget proposal through, but he also made it so it's going to be really hard for Democrats to vote against a teacher pay raise. So so in some sense, it, it, it puts Democrats in a political vice. But but, uh, but the governor does, Scott, Scott is right, the governor does set the revenue estimate, right. so his budget is based on the revenue yes, estimate. Yes, it is. Right. And, and, and it, so he submitted his budget. So just to Right. Yeah, I just didn't point. hear what the number was. It's a number we always look forward to hearing from a governor, whether it's three percent growth, four percent growth, whatever. I think it was the state economic forecaster that kind of outlined. Okay. That. Okay. That's all I was really uh, asking. But thanks for clarifying that, uh, Amy. Your take on uh, on the fact that uh, as uh, as uh, Greg just suggested, there'll be a lot of spending in this budget. I think it's in part a recognition of the issues that are going on in the state. I mean, one of the things that we do know is that studies show that stimulus funds have long-term impacts. And a lot of these are a type of stimulus funds, but also sort of long-term care. People who have health insurance have better outcomes. They're more productive. They're going to cost less in the future. They get like they have less illnesses, which then costs the state less money. And so that's where sort of that comes in when it comes to the teacher raises again. Right. That's the type of thing that you want people to be able to afford cost of living. You don't want teachers moving out of areas because they can't afford to live there and right. not being willing to go in and take those jobs. All right. Before we move off teacher raises, I think, Scott, it's important for listeners across the state, particularly to understand something about a statewide teacher raise. Individual school districts in the past have taken money earmarked for raises and chosen instead. They still have the final say on how that money that's appropriated for raises is spent. And in the past, you've got two problems. Number one, what does it mean for the local school districts in terms of benefits and added costs that are accompanying a raise? And what if they decide they don't want to use that money for raises but have other more urgent needs, in their opinion? And that will apply much more to state uh, to schools in uh, less populated rural areas of the state, right? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And to, to take a step back just a second is I think part of what is driving this, too, is we don't want to have uh, strikes in Georgia like we've seen in West Virginia and other places around the country where teachers have just gotten to a point of being so fed up that they're not going to take it anymore. Um, but you're right, Bill, is in terms of how the money is actually apportioned is the local school boards will continue to have a role. And we have made uh, increases in prior budgets just over the recent last few years, and not all those dollars wound up in the teachers' pockets. And, and so th these are issues that need to be worked out. That said, I think even with the $3,000 um, raise, we're still not paying teachers where we need to pay them. We want them to be professional and we want it to be an aspirational profession and we're just not supporting them at that level right now. Well, I think the governor has would agree with you and has, I think he said 5,000, yes. but we're going to have to work Do to it that. in a couple of years. Sizable down payment. And and that the discretion issue is something I think if you ask Governor Deal, he would say that was one of his regrets. Right. Is that um, because they, we, the AJC found dozens of school districts that sent the money towards infrastructure or right. towards administration costs, raises for the superintendents, not raises for the teachers. And that really got under his cross. I mean, that really upset him. Is there, can the legislature put into the measure a requirement that local school districts use this money for teacher pay? Is that possible? It would be interesting to look at that. That's a good question, but it also kind of jars with the whole, you know, Republican local of control. Of course, local control. So, so it's not something that I don't think Republican lawmakers yeah. would want to address. But, yeah, that's a good question. All right. Um, let's look at the other set part of this. You, you mentioned it already, Scott. Your caucus, the Democratic caucus, yesterday released a revenue estimate 
that came from the state. The state right? auditor. From the state auditor. You've been saying for a long time now, Medicaid expansion, Democrats pushing for it. Clearly, you've been rebuffed by uh, the Speaker of the House, as well as first Nathan Deal. Now Brian Kemp says he has no interest in it. And we've got to be careful here because their reasoning has been they don't believe that the federal government will be able to cover the costs moving forward and therefore the state will be stuck with a bill after maybe in, sometime in the 2020s, right? You're, the, the, the auditor gave you a figure that's not based on the total cost if the state had to assume it itself, right? But on the state share. Am I right about that? Correct. And what is that state share? The state share would be about 100, uh, 180 to 220 million, roughly, uh, going into 2020, 2021. And in terms of, we have a $26.6 billion budget, roughly. So just to put that in context of what we're dealing with, and uh, the areas where this would most help are the rural areas because the hospitals there all too often their patients don't have insurance and they can't pay. So if we expand Medicaid expansion, or if we expand Medicaid, it gives insurance to these individuals, about 500,000, and then they would be able to pay for their medical care and they would have access to medical care. 90% of the, the hospital closures in rural areas in this country have occurred in states that have not expanded Medicaid. And Georgia has had a number that have. And, and I get the sense that even though politically there is an unwillingness uh, by members of the opposing party to, to do this, I think that there is. They just want to call it something different and go through what's called a waiver under Section 1115. Um, but I think the math case is very, very strong that we should do this. Uh, Amy, the, the reason I asked Scott to go through this, making sure we understand he's talking about the state's share of mm -hmm. Medicaid, is that in many ways this, uh, from the, the auditors of the state, doesn't answer the concerns that Republicans have posed, which is what they're talking about is what if the feds bail out, then you're suddenly talking about a much bigger price tag to continue that Medicaid expansion. Exactly. So what we have is that there is the baseline of what all states have to cover in terms of Medicaid and who it expands to. And then under the Affordable Care Act, there was the possibility for states to expand that number to a larger one. And the federal government would cover 90 percent of the costs with the state having to cover that remaining 10%. And the concerns, because it keeps becoming an issue of whether or not, for example, they're, right, all the repeal and replace drama that people might remember from not that long ago, um, that part of that was getting rid of the Medicaid expansion and limiting that amount. So the states are concerned, what if we expand this and then we're on the hook right. for 100% of the cost? Right. So you're just moving the ball down the field a bit, but it's not quite answering the concerns that your Republican friends downtown have. Right. We don't know. And we do have a, a balanced budget amendment, so it's a legitimate concern. And to be fair, I wasn't one of the early ringleaders of saying that we should get onto this because I wanted to kind of see how it would play out in terms of other states. But it has generally worked yeah. pretty well. And I, I don't think that you find too many economists or policymakers that say not to do it. Let me give you a last word, Eric, before we get to our break. Well, I, I think Scott alluded to it. You know, he, he, he says, you know, Republicans may call it something else, but I think think that there is a commitment that the governor said it in a state of the state. He he is asking to, uh, you know, prepare a Medicaid waiver. So I think that there is agreement that we need to do something uh, about Medicaid. And I think a waiver gives you much more, gives the state much more flexibility. Real quick, I got to get a break in, Amy. I think the other side of it is to remember that it's really hard to take away health insurance once you give it to right. people. And that's why we haven't seen repeal and replace work on the national level. And so the the idea that the program is going to go away, I'm, I don't really want to bet, but I'm not sure I'd put my money on that. A great piece of information and told in such a way that I could still get to a break pretty easily. <laughs> Thank you. But I do have to give you one important uh, a piece of information. Um, we just got a, a note from Kyle Hayes, uh, who's on, on this show. He works out of Washington. He's oversees Peach Pod, the podcast. Uh, Speaker Pelosi says that she will not permit the president to give his State of the Union address on January 29th in oh. the House. Yeah, as long the, as as long as the government as long as the is government is shut, shut down. down. Right. All right. Let's get to a break. We'll be right back. 
While Erlon Woods was a San Quentin inmate, he told his stories and the stories of fellow inmates on the podcast Ear Hustle. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with Woods, who is now free after serving 21 years in prison. His sentence was commuted by Governor Jerry Brown nearly two months ago. We'll also hear from his Ear Hustle co-host and co-producer, Nigel Poor, who is not an inmate. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Who are the people whose names you see at the end of a movie or a TV show? I'm Kalina Bowler. I've worked for years behind the scenes in Georgia's booming film industry. In my GPB podcast, I meet the people who help bring art to life, from actors to stuntmen to camera operators. Join me for the credits. Subscribe at thecreditspodcast.com. Welcome back to Political Rewind. During the break, uh, the panel told me who's really in charge of the show. Not me. I was set to move on. But uh, Scott Hokum and Greg Bluestein both wanted to add a couple of notes to the budget story. Uh, Scott, we talked about it on the, yes- on the show yesterday. Mary Margaret Oliver, a frequent panelist on the show, uh, sent a note to us saying, what is this million dollars that the governor says he needs to study how to put a waiver together. We already know how to do that, and you're concerned about that as well. I agree. I think it's absolute nonsense. It needs to go to an external consultant, and I I can't imagine that we don't have the capacity right now to do this. These waivers are not terribly complex. Uh, Other states have done them, and it's not something that we need to pay a million dollars for. The rumor mill is that it's going to go to Tom Price, uh, the former uh, Secretary Mm -hmm. of Health and Human Services. That's what I was going to chime in on. We haven't confirmed it yet. We wrote that it, he, Brian Kemp indicated he would go to health secretary, former health secretary Tom Price. Um, his office isn't talking, and he wouldn't take questions a- today. A- Amy, Georgia but- State University, University of Georgia, Kennesaw State, all of you could, in fact, put together the kinds of experts that could uh, work on something like this. Yeah, We most decidedly could. <laughs> <laughs> but you would want to get some appropriated dollars or some payment for that. And, you know— over oh, the years, sure, yeah. yeah, and over the years when you prepare these you waivers, you know we do and things, a lot of you, stuff for free, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but they hire outside consultants to to do studies, and I get that. You're absolutely right. It will be interesting if it's Tom Price, won't it? Yes, Eric Schrock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see. A controversial right. figure to say Scott, least. A, a million dollars. It's a lot of money. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the governor's office. I, I, we're, you know, I yesterday I said it. We would love to hear from the governor's office why a million dollars, and I'm hopeful we'll get a response. And you, Bluestein, talk to him all the time. You'll find out. I know. We'll, we'll see. Scott Hokum, as we were sitting here before the show began, you told me about a couple of bills that you're looking at introducing that you're not ready to talk. You're still working on what the specifics are going to be. But you're going to take up a really interesting question and try to resolve it in this session. Tell us about what you want to do with the idea of how rape is defined and prosecuted. Thanks, Bill. It's something I've worked on for several years uh, is the issue of sexual violence in our state. And I think that our definition really needs to be uh, brought into this century. The current definition that we have is based on force and willfulness. Uh, Senator Donzella James filed a bill last year and got it to a hearing, and I'm going to file a bill that's a little bit different, but on the same subject this year. And I think it's time for us to update it. And very simply, it should be based on whether or not there was consent or not. And uh, there's a federal definition that that's what it has. And one of the, the concerns that I have is whether or not we're getting the reports of the incidents as, as much as they're occurring. And we know that there's at least 250 happening per month because that's how many GBI is receiving in sexual assault kits every month, and that's been pretty steady for several years. But it's it's an issue that I'm passionate about, and I think it's time for us to update the code. You're also looking at how it's how the current statutes relate to gender, correct? Yes, because the the current definition is 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 gender specific. It can only be a male to a female, and and I'm a former military prosecutor. I. I tried a case of uh, male-on-male um, sexual assault. So it happens uh, between genders and, and within the same gender, and I think that the law should recognize that. Amy, you're nodding uh, vigorously as he says all this. Rape laws have for a long time been a very big issue in lots of places in the way that we define it and 
having a requirement of showing force is what has led to a lot of the recent stories of sort of real concerns about what's seen as rape or not, that, you know, women are expected or men to say that they fought back vigorously, right? When someone's holding a gun to your head, is the correct reaction really to try to beat them off or, right? But it's not really consent if you submit in that situation, right? You're under doing so under a threat of duress. And so that's been a real issue um, with a lot of the rape laws across the country. And what we know, if I can chime in really quickly on that, is, is there's this common sense that there's fight or flight, but there's also freeze. For mm -hmm. some people who are victims of incredibly heinous crimes, their body just shuts down and they freeze. Is this a partisan uh, bill or can you get a Republican, a couple of Republican signers on this legislation when you finally are ready to, to drop it? I've done a lot of work in this space, and everything I've done has been bipartisan, and that's my plan this time, too. Eric, I would think that's true. I, I would think Republicans are, are willing to—it depends on what his language ends up being, but certainly something Republicans will be open to. Yeah, I think I think so. Okay, And you Greg? managed to forge a pretty tight relationship with Speaker Ralston over the, the sexual assault kit legislation from a few years back. So. Right. Right. That will come in handy. Uh, we, we are almost out of time, Greg, but you were out with Stacey Abrams. You were in Albany when she started her tour, right? So, uh, and you filed a really good, uh, lengthy uh, write-through about this. We still don't know what she's going to do. Yeah, she focused much of her conversation uh, to her supporters in Albany uh, on uh, Brian Kemp, not on David Perdue. She actually didn't mention David Perdue's name once, but she also said, don't read the tea leaves into that. Um, <laughs> you know, it was it was basically back in her comfort zone. It was it was almost as if she was still running for governor. Um, but look, today she met with Senator Harris, Kamala Harris, up in Washington. Um, she's met with Chuck Schumer. She's met with other Senate leaders. She's being heavily recruited. Um, she's got a, a big decision to make um, because, you know, this, the Democrats think this seat could be winnable in 2020. But if she loses it, she has two defeats in a row and it's hard to come back from that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Eric, you're making a face. Yeah, I would be very surprised if she does not run. I think that she's probably getting tremendous pressure. And, you know, the landscape's going to be very different three years from now or four years from now. And Brian Kemp will have one term behind him. And, you know, I think he's going to do some great things for the state. And it's not going to be like, it, you, you know, uh, an open seat. Yeah. Me meanwhile, one of our longtime panelists, Teresa Tomlinson, former mayor of Columbus, just out of that job, is sitting and saying she's waiting mm -hmm. to hear from Stacey Abrams because there are many Democrats, Amy, who think Teresa Tomlinson uh, will be could be a terrific candidate. Uh, but Abrams certainly has the feel to herself until she decides not to make the race. Yes. I mean, I think really it's Abrams will make a decision and then we will see what's going to happen after that. But I think if Abrams declares, it's very, very unlikely that yeah. you'll have a primary challenger in part to make sure that you can have a strong campaign all the way through and not have to spend the money and time on that. Scott, quick uh, response from you uh, uh, on this. We're running out of time. I, I agree with everything that's been said. And I think that you got to go when you're hot, and I think Abrams is in the news right now, and it would be a compelling move to make. Uh, Eric, you get the last word well, if we can have some Super Bowl tickets. Well, yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> I think she'd be doing a disservice to her party if she decides not to run and she drags this out, because the longer she drags it out, you know, it becomes really hard for someone. All right, that's it. We are completely out of time. Greg Bluestein, Eric Tannenblatt, Amy Steigerwald, Scott Holcomb, and earlier Tamar Hallerman. Thanks for a really great discussion today today. Uh, we're back on Friday at two o'clock with another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.